2: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. It's that time of the week again, so we're reading The Economist and uh, we're going to talk about some of the more interesting stories uh, from the latest issue. I have with me today, Suyash and Anirudh. I want to start with you, Suyash. We're going to be talking about a bunch of stories today, right? Everything from UN peacekeeping operations to Ireland. So I I want to first start with uh, what you've read about uh, UN peacekeeping operations and uh, this... uh, particular story seems to make a point about enforcing peace and and peacekeeping and how these are conceptually very different operations.
0: Tell us about it. Okay, so before starting going into the story, I want to just explain differences between these concepts. One is peacekeeping, one is peacemaking. Peacekeeping comes with an element of coercion. So you put troops on the ground where the two or three fighting regimes are stopped from fighting from each other. That is you try to peace. One is peacemaking, which doesn't include an element of coercion. It is basically diplomatic efforts to stop insurgencies, wars, etc. or skirmishes. So what is happening, this article is about the Economist, the current article in The Economist is about Syria. So what is happening in Syria is that there were 13 envoys since the conflict started which are trying to establish peacemaking. This is the 13th envoy and efforts have failed one after another. So. Due to the regime, the current regime or external involvement into the crisis, the efforts have been failed on envoy level, in general assembly level, as well as security council level. The article then deep dives into the number of the things that are happening on uh, Turkish border. So there is a mass movement of people, the affected people from one country to another country and Turkey is trying to seal its border. The uh, migration has been stopped and how this is reflecting into the human rights crisis, human uh, human rights violation that is happening as in it's winter time. So people have no way to go and how in this larger picture, United Nations have failed to make peace and also failed to bring forces on ground due to wasted interest of different different countries. Also, you can put a theoretical argument to that because of countries, all the major actors are involved into it. For example, US, Russia. On the opposite sides of the spectrum, due to this, their actions in the UN Security Council is barring United Nations from putting force on the ground.
3: Of course, as a single biggest problem with any UN mediation effort. right? Something very similar happened in Libya as well. Yes. Where even though the UN said that there are not going to be any arms sales to any actors in the Libyan civil war. We saw that France and Russia got heavily involved. Mm -hmm. Russia even actually sent out private military contractors. And since these are Security Council members, they have extraordinary amounts of, like, basically impunity to do whatever the hell they want. Um, So how do you... Is there any realistic pathway do you think to managing this sort of great power interference
0: in peacekeeping
3: or peacemaking efforts?
0: The article says that there are few ways. Uh, first point that the article makes is that whenever women are in the negotiation, the negotiations are better. So there is a ice breaking whenever women are in the negotiation. That is what the article says. Second point, one of the contesting parties should give up due to maybe complete loss of loss of ground or loss of equipment or loss of their power if a party gives up then only there is a way out but otherwise we seem to have gone into an impasse. Yeah some of these uh, suggestions like having women um, representatives on
2: both sides actually are very commonly argued in uh, in literature on conflict resolution uh, where I think that uh, that may not hold is simply just the fact that if you like as Anirudh said if you have great power in interference uh, that basically trumps everything else uh, it really doesn't matter who you have on that panel because I'm not sure those people have a great deal of say again there's a lot of uh, literature pointing out that when um, outside powers with uh, with different vested interests intervene in a civil war the civil war
0: is t- tends to be prolonged also there is one more element to this so there are so un has all not only failed to keep troops on the ground but they've also fa- failed to imp- uh, to put an arms embargo put an arms embargo on this Countries, so only Saudi Arabia, in Houthi's are uh, I think some countries have bilaterally put an embargo, but otherwise in Middle East most of the countries there are no embargo, multilateral embargoes or bilateral embargoes, and due to the vested interest of different different countries, for example Russia, US, we know the Chinese, these are bigger big arms players in this conflict. so, yeah, so this is
2: actually the other story that you're talking yes. about, uh, about. So this
0: story is linking to that story. So yeah. I'm just putting a link of this story, that is saying I'm just putting a cue from this story that this is also an element where US, uh, UN has uh, failed, putting an arms
2: embargo. Alright, so just tell us what, what is this uh, other story, what is this argument about uh, uh, arms sales in the Middle East specifically, it talks about Russia and China making inroads in the region, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So, the US has been one of the big bigger players in the Middle East, also the SIPRI data recently came out with Chinese making heavy inroads in top 20 arms exporting companies, and Russia, the. Back to this article is the re- recent defense expo that happened in uh, Dubai. Russia had a major display there and Russia is trying to make an inroad as well. Some of these countries have put restrictions on their arms, self-restrictions on their arms helps to the Middle Eastern countries, especially Saudi Arabia, for example, US, some of the European countries, Canada, etc. However, this is giving a edge to countries like Russia and China, because they are not self-restricting themselves from uh, exporting arms like drones, for instance, to this country. And that is where they are making a major inroad into these markets. Um, and as we, as we I have pointed out recently, the cipri uh, data is backing this by saying that number of companies, uh, there are four companies already in top 20 list of exporting data. And we don't have data on all the companies. so. China and Russia are making major inroads into Middle Eastern markets. China,
3: I believe, is one of the world's biggest exporters of UAVs now. And I think there's, there's a lot sort of Middle Eastern actors who are actually interested in buying Chinese stuff. And for me, it's also quite interesting how China and Russia are competing to basically uh, gobble up bits of the defense market that the US is slowly being pushed out of, right? so Because uh, China offers reasonably... Uh, modern equipment at very low prices, uh, Russia is m- more on the cutting edge end of the spectrum. So in that sense, they end up competing with the Europeans and Americans a lot more. But as you said, it's it's a very interesting game and it's constantly getting hotter. And it's, it's difficult to see how there can be a reasonable way forward to peace in various parts of the Middle East when it's just so profitable for major powers to be involved in selling arms to both sides.
0: However, it is too early to say that U.S. has been pushed out. U.S. is getting pushed out. Definitely not. I mean, they still dominate the global arms sales market, but they're slowly losing a bit of market share. Because major type of the equipment that goes here is aircraft. Hmm. And uh, U.S. is a major producer of that and exporter in Saudi Arabia.
2: Yeah, so Saudi Arabia really has no choice other than to go to Western Europe or North American suppliers of combat aircraft, basically. I want to move on to you, Anirudh, and uh, let's move to first Southeast Asia and Central Asia. Uh, What is going on in the Philippines?
3: Well, since we've been on the subject of um, the Americans poking their nose where it's not really required. So I'm I'm sure that all of our listeners know that uh, the the Philippines president, Mr. Duterte, has had quite a confrontational relationship with the US in the past. But it's never really amounted to anything more than just rhetoric. Um, Now, though, things seem to be changing. So the U.S. recently announced a travel ban on one of Mr. Duterte's closest aides. This guy was deeply involved in the crackdown on, uh, quote-unquote, drug dealers, which has essentially been a series of extrajudicial executions. We're not really sure what the selection process is for, the targeting process is for any of these people. Um, And there's obviously no sort of trial or evidence being presented in a lot of cases. So the U.S. has basically used that as an excuse to ban Mr. Duterte's aides from coming into the U.S. U.S. Uh, Duterte first responded by banning his cabinet from traveling to the U.S. and has now said that he's going to be abrogating an agreement which allows the U.S. to base troops there, um, which which might have a lot of ramifications for the South China Sea dispute. Um, as you know, there's a considerable overlap in claims between the Philippines and China in the region. Up to this point, the Americans have been happy enough to kind of work with the Philippines, do joint patrols, that kind of thing for signaling and so on and so forth. but. That's obviously now jeopardized by what Mr. Duterte has done. I'm really not sure why he did something like this, just strategically speaking, unless he's become a lot more comfortable with moving towards China than he hitherto has been.
2: Right, so... Philippines is not the only country that's you know veering somewhat towards China you have Laos and and Cambodia for example uh but in in the case of Laos and Cambodia there is at least from their point of view a compelling reason which is that they're they're more frankly more afraid of Vietnam than they are of China hmm. but in the case of Philippines I'm not sure what Duterte is thinking I, beyond well China's next door and America's far away hmm. uh, I'm not sure what his rationale is for uh loosening ties with the United States some of this could just be interpreted as as you know as part of his maverick personality and so on and his take on the philippines anirudh there's another story about uh conservatism in the philippines and uh, there's, there's some very interesting religious dynamics in the philippines uh between catholics and protestants
3: So if you look at the history of the Philippines, it's originally a Spanish colony. It's called the Philippines because named after King Philip II of Spain. Uh, But it was also an American colony, which is one of the reasons why the Americans have such a major presence there. So the vast majority of Filipinos are Catholics. Uh, The Catholics have been Pretty much um, anti a lot of Duterte's policies. Duterte has a famously confrontational relationship with the Catholic Church. He's used some fairly choice expletives in describing Pope Francis, for example. And the Catholics have been very, very critical of his so-called war on drugs, all of which have basically reduced them to political non-relevance. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the Protestants. Now, the Protestants aren't a very big force in the Philippines population-wise, but as it tends to be with most evangelical, highly organized groups, uh, they have a disproportionate influence on the politics of the Philippines. So even though the vast majority of Philippines uh, seem to be fairly okay with gay marriage, um, if you look at the Philippines Pride March in Manila, for example, every year you, you see upwards of 50,000 people attending. And the last one had nearly 70,000 attendees. So clearly, it's, it's not something that society inherently has a problem with but as you're seeing in so many other countries when you have a very loud vocal religious minority they're able to kind of impose their values on the rest of society and um, you can see that a lot of politicians in the Philippines seem to seem to understand this as well if you look at the Philippine Senate which is in the way that the Senate is is comprises really weird system uh, it has just 24 members all of whom are elected from a nationwide pool by all Filipinos So imagine the challenge of you, one of like a huge field of candidates, having to mobilize a large section of votes from I think a population of nearly what 100 million people, if I'm not wrong. It's an enormous challenge. You obviously want to make sure that the most motivated groups are going to be coming out and voting for you, which obviously means you have to turn to the Protestants. So as I said, the Protestants have a very disproportionate influence. These guys are very much in favor of what Duterte has been doing in terms of drugs. They're also extremely unhappy with uh, giving out contraceptives for example so the poorest filipinos don't have access to modern contraceptive methods which is potentially a huge problem in in a in a catholic country where you know where having sex is kind of uh, religiously sanctioned uh, to a great extent so it's and especially keep in mind the philippines is kind of infamous for sex tourism that's something that's very, very dangerous. This is life-threatening. It is very life-threatening. It's, and it's, it's kind of tragic to see how in, in a lot of countries, religious attitudes just hold back public health from moving forward into the 21st century.
2: And I just want to now go from uh, Philippines uh, into the heart of Eurasia hmm. to Kazakhstan, where there's another story about um, ethnic tensions there.
3: So once again, uh, I think a little bit of historical context is needed. Now Kazakhstan is essentially this really large blob of land just south of Russia and above all the other tiny little stands that you see in Central Asia. Um, it's one of the largest countries in the world. It's also one of the most ethnically diverse for a multitude of reasons. First of all, it's Central Asia. Central Asia is an ethnically diverse place by virtues of being the crossroads of Eurasia where people are constantly moving through. Uh, but also during the Soviet period, Kazakhstan was basically colonized by Russians. Uh, it has an enormous Russian minority, I think nearly 40% right now. They're one of the largest ethnic groups there. And of course, since Kazakhstan is technically for the Kazakhs, there have been tensions bubbling away between Russians and ethnic Kazakhs for the longest time. Uh, There have been tensions over what kind of script to use, the use of Cyrillic has been kind of looked down upon. Uh, So there's been a lot of interesting politics around that. Now what we're seeing though is that ethnic Kazakhs are starting to kind of throw their weight around with other minority groups who aren't as politically powerful as the Russians. So in particular the Dungars, who are basically a Mongoloid peoples who are Muslims who make up just 0.4% of the population. Um, a very large number of them were killed in riots. Um, I think on the 7th of February, uh, forced to leave their homes, their shops were burned down, while Kazakh shops and all that were obviously not touched. Though 90 people have been taken into custody, uh, it's not really clear what exactly the conditions are that they're going to be charged under. Um, a few of them have already been released. There's no word as to how many of them are actually in detention right now. So though the political leaders have obviously come out and like condemned it and like in general, Kazakhstan has been fairly good at managing ethnic tensions, in fact, better than most Central Asian countries, it's going to be interesting to see how that changes in the years to come. Uh, What's driving the violence though? I think it's probably the same as any other place, right? You have um, slowing economic growth, you have increasing ties of ethno-nationalism, and very often the people who end up on the receiving end of that are the poorest.
2: I want to close with uh, with a leader that, from the latest uh, issue of The Economist, which asks if a united Ireland is now on the horizon. Uh, again, I'll just provide very quick historical context, Ireland was a British colony. It had a war of independence from 1919 to 1921, during which the Irish Free State was created. Bas- basically, the contours of what is today the Republic of Ireland. And uh, the northern part of the island, which is uh, a Protestant majority, uh, remained part of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there was a civil war from 21 to 23 uh, because a bunch of people did not agree to this treaty which uh, which partitioned the island. Uh, partitioning is a British empire habit. <laughs> so, so what happened after that is, of course, you had uh, the Troubles in the 1970s and the 80s as so-called provisional IRA started an insurgency against the British in Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland has been a fairly divided place between uh, Protestants and Catholics. In fact, there's a story inside this issue of The Economist which uh, talks about how there are these competing ideas about uh, atonement and forgiveness what what's the way forward in, in Ireland mm-hmm. the, there are people who say that if you atone it actually brings uh, it actually brings closure but there are others who say if you do this atonement you just open up a can of worms and you know everybody's going to be blaming each other and then there're the people who say let's just forgive and put an end to that. And, you know, there's, I think that's, one, that's an ongoing uh, debate in Northern Ireland. What could make uh, Irish reunification likely or more possible is, of course, partly Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we all know, uh, on January 31st, uh, Britain formally started the process of exiting the European Union. At the end of this year, that process will be completed if it goes as per schedule. So then w- what happens to the boundary between Northern Ireland, and the Irish Republic. So far, they've been talking about letting that boundary be uh, be open, remain open. There was a 1998 agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, which basically created a soft border there. And now, with Britain exiting the EU, that becomes a problem. This also comes at a time when there's been a sort of uh, surprise result in an election in uh, in Ireland, where uh, the Sinn Féin, which is a party that has links to the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, has actually gained a lot of votes. And, uh, they've made no bones about their uh, desire for a united Ireland. That's one critical factor driving this. There are also more subtle long-term trends. Uh, The relationship between uh, Protestants and Catholics has been generally improving Ireland. Both Northern Ireland and Irish Republic are today more liberal, less religious. So there's less fear of Catholic domination today. And so it's possible that at a future date, uh, the two parts of Ireland will actually uh, reunite into a... Republic.
3: If only the colonial masters agree, of
2: <laughs> course. Yeah. So, yeah, Britain has no ability to play the colonial master anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Good for that. Yeah. On that note, we'll end this episode of Reading the Economist. Thank you so much, Suyash. And thank you, Anirudh. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on All Things Policy.
1: If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in. Hey, hey, it's been another
4: great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On All Things Policy, Ananya Desai and Rohan Pai discuss recurrent bans on fireworks during festive seasons in India and discuss possible solutions to tackle India's air pollution problem. On The Habit Coach Podcast, Ashton Doctor welcomes Sahil Mehta, an esteemed mountaineer and author of the book Break Free. Sahil shares a transformative experience which became the catalyst for embracing discipline and fulfillment. The episode explores the profound impact of vulnerability on personal growth. Folks, if you like our shows, do spread the word. Tell your friends and don't forget to rate and review them wherever you're listening to them. Follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. You'll also find all our shows on YouTube at youtube.com slash IVM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Omedia Network India, Abbott, IDFC First Bank and Save Life Foundation. Thank you for making this possible.